I've become infinitely better as a coach because I've taken on head coaching duties. I've learned about managing people better. I'll be honest, two summers ago when I got the job, I was like super nervous. I was like, dude, do I know how to run an offense? You know, am I going to be able to run practices every day? What are my practices going to look like? Putting together game plans, substitution patterns, you know, shoot arounds, all these things have just been the best investment for my career by far. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of the G League's South Bay Lakers, Miles Simon. Coach Simon is here today to discuss the history and changes to player development plans, defining reality, and we talk gut instincts and defending drag screens during the always fun start, sub, or sit. With members from the NBA to high school levels, we're excited to continue building a highly valuable learning and community platform called SG+. With SG+, we aim to bring the highest quality and deepest insights of the game from around the world on a weekly basis through our almost 600 video archive on SGTV, private coaching community app, in our long read Sunday morning newsletter. If you're looking to explore and learn the game on a deeper level, or just save yourself time searching the internet for the best backdoor plays in Europe, visit slappingglass.com today and see why current members are calling it an essential platform for high-level coaching anywhere. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Miles Simon. Miles, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us today. We're really excited to jump into a bunch of stuff with you. Hey, glad to be here. I really appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, thanks, Miles. I'd like to jump in with this. It's something that you've done really well over the course of your career is developing players, bringing them from whatever level they're at to a higher level. And you've done it in multiple spots. And we wanted to just dive in on how you think about coming up with player development plans that makes sense for that player, for that team, for that specific season. And I guess the jumping off point of what you and the staff think about and look at when you're building those things up. Player development, I think it can go a couple different ways. And I've done it a couple different ways. So like when I first started doing player development, man, it's probably 14 or 15 years ago now and like 08, 09. And I'm working with guys like Landry Field and Michael Roll and Travis and David Ware. It wasn't developed around their team. It was developed around just like getting their individual skill better because I wasn't the coach of their team, wherever they're playing college, heading into the pros, whatever it might be. In that sense, when I was taking like those guys, let's take like Landry Fields, for example, I had him going into his pre-draft, you know, really just trying to work on his overall, like, so think about his ball handling, because he's going to be a two guard, probably in the NBA, how he can better break guys down and tighten up his handle, really working on and developing his more consistent three-point shot. Like in college at Stanford, he was an okay shooter, but that was kind of the knock on him of why he might not get drafted. They didn't think he'd be maybe a capable NBA three-point shooter. So for that time, over a couple of years span, he obviously gets drafted, but just developing his individual skill every day, 
starting with the ball handling, working on his finishing, which he already had like a really good skill set, but just enhancing some things he could do at the NBA level, finishing wise, and then dialing in on his three-point shooting each and every day. That was the biggest difference maker for him on him getting drafted. That was one way about like skill development is just concentrating on the overall skill, but it wasn't pertaining to necessarily a team. It was just all about his individual. But now that I've been in the NBA like the past six years with the Lakers, to me, my mindset kind of changes a little bit. So like when I was with Alex Caruso and Kyle Kuzma and Josh Hart and some of these other guys with the Lakers, my mindset changed somewhat. Now still obviously working on the individual skill development, the ball handling, the shooting, but I would almost cater or tailor it a little bit to more where their shots might be coming from and what type of shots they were getting in games. Even though like Alex Crusoe is a point guard slash combo guard, he might not be getting as many pick and roll shots when you're playing with LeBron because LeBron is going to be handling the pick and roll a lot. So like a lot of spot up shots or a lot of going catches, a lot of finishes at the rim for AC. Kuz, we're trying to develop into maybe more of an all around player that you see for the Wizards now. But his role playing with LeBron his last three seasons, same thing. He played a little bit more off the ball. So like you worked on like cuts, moving without the ball a little bit more. Obviously his spot of three-point shooting, stuff that he was going to see in the game. So it's been kind of twofold the way I attack player development, depending on the player and the situation. Miles, what's changed or you know, maybe your mindset as far as when you were a player, especially like when you were coming out of college, going pro, how player development has maybe changed or how you look at it differently is when you were going through the process yourself, like how people worked you out, how you got better versus how maybe you look at doing it now. Yeah, it's way different because I'm old. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I was like 20, man, 25 years ago. I think player development at that time, individual player development was just kind of starting or blossoming. And I had a guy when I was coming out for pre-draft, his name was Howard Avery. You know, he worked on the ball handling and the shooting. He changed my shot a little bit because in college I shot with my left hand, my thumb was on the ball and it gave it like a weird spin at times. So he was able to like adjust that to me around that time area. So I've been like mid to like late nineties. I just played a lot. There wasn't a huge emphasis on all these finishes that you had to have or playing pick and roll or stuff like that. Like I just went and played and that was like my player development. That's how I got better just competing all the time. So I think we've lost over time a little bit of that. There's nothing wrong with the player development, but guys, to me, you have to go apply it to games and see like if that ball handling works or like you can make adjustments or you can make game speed shots. I think there's different aspects that have changed over time. And I think it's been for the better because if you look at the skill level of these guys in the NBA and you're watching the NBA playoffs right now, man, is it some high skill level out there from seven foot bigs, you know, like Jokic and Embiid to the things that Devin Booker is doing on a nightly basis. Miles, the piggybacking off of that point, you're going to try to develop the skill, but now applying it and bringing it to the conceptual element of it. As a coach, you know, with the South Bay Lakers this year, how did you think about also improving the guys on a conceptual level? So I have really great assistant coaches. We talk about this during the off season. For the South Bay Lakers, we don't really get our team until like the day before training camp. So we know who the players are, but we don't necessarily have our hands on them like over the summertime, because in the G League, your roster has great fluctuation every year. 
So once we start to get our hands on them in practice, we try to do everything within the realm of the team for the most part when we're doing the player development, the type of shots they're going to get. If a guy's going to be a pick and roll player, he's going to be an off ball player. We work on those things almost daily. And then if we really want to dive into the individual stuff where we get to let them feel good about their game, we have what's called player development days. So it's like if we have two or three days, mostly probably like three days in between games, instead of having a full practice, I'll just tell the guys, hey, tomorrow's a PDD day. Come in, get our individual work in. You're just going to be with your coach that day. We're going to work on ball handling, finishes, our passing, all our shooting within just individual development, not within like what the team scheme would be. And the guys really enjoy that because in the G League, you always want to feel like it used to be called the developmental league, right? The D League. You always want to feel like you're getting better and progressing towards what, you know, in the NBA and you're not having to do team stuff all the time. And the guys we found, they've really, really enjoyed that. And Miles, the days when you are doing the team stuff, is it small breakdowns three on three, or are you still repping against maybe the coaches? non-live, non-contact, but just the things that are the shots they're going to get? Yeah, it's mostly, it'll be like two-on-two or three-on-three, and then usually against the coaches on those days. Just working on the passing, the reads they might see, like if they're running like step-up, pick-and-roll, and we know the team is like a low man's always going to come in, like working on that corner skip passes, like redriving the basketball, then relocating to the weak side, stuff that we would do within our offense. We usually play a four-out or around one offensive scheme for the most part, depending on how our roster looks. Working on that type of stuff in two-on-two or three-on-three so they can start making the reads. And that now it's not all about just like getting the shot every time. Okay, now you got to read the defender. If the nail help is heavy and you're driving to the middle, then we give, we call it early easies, where you just got to hit that slot guy and then he's making the next decision, whether it's drive, pass, or shoot. Always trying to give them the most game-like scenarios as we can as coaches. Miles, when you're trying to figure out if a player is growing or not, or if they're really developing, are there any metrics or any ways that you and the staff use to say, okay, like we're working on this for a month or two or whatever, and here's where we're actually seeing the growth with these players? Or is there a way for the player to see the growth other than maybe just the feel of the whole thing? I think there's a couple ways. One part of what I haven't spoken about is the film work. The film lets you see everything the good and the bad. And I'm always on my coaches, show it all. There's no substitute for that because then they can really see and grow like, okay, I have been getting to the rim, then I haven't been finishing. I only really drive left. I got to work on, you know, being a little more versatile, driving right. I'm missing these reads when the big man is rolling and I'm speaking in guards term right now, but the big man's rolling and I'm not throwing it up to him at the rim, even though his guy has committed to me. And then there's analytical data. We look at where you're taking your shots. You know, if you're taking too many contested mid-range shots, like, you know, we have to eliminate those. I'd rather have you just move the ball on to the next guy. We use all that stuff, even in the G League. Obviously, in the NBA, they definitely do. Half our team was probably rookies this year. Showing them their shot type, their playmakes, what they're doing, how they're doing defensively. So with the film work and the analytics, so kind of a combination of both. Miles, with the young guys, and and maybe when you see they start to stagnate, like they're plateauing and you're showing the film, but they can't make the read or they're struggling to make the read. How do you break through that stagnation or are there characteristics you see from the player that are impeding their ability to take that next step? 
it's hard because there's some guys that they can't get it or they can't see it. And I'm okay with that. I understand who can and who can't, but my job and our staff's job is to keep teaching it to them. And hopefully it's just small steps or breakthroughs. Like we had seen it with one of our players this year. He was using pick and roll and he just wasn't making the pass. Like he was just only seeing the shot and he was not seeing the reads on the passes to the weak side or the drop-offs to the bigs. And it was a process and you kept showing him, showing him. And then like one game, it was like started to click for him. And he was making some of these reads that we've been asking him to make because it's like other teams, they watch the film too. So they know, Hey, when Pat drives to the rim, he's only going to shoot. So like go and just vertical him, make it tough for him. He doesn't make the drop off pass. So telling him when amongst other guys, these little things, you just have to keep coaching them and not like give up on them. Now, are there guys that it's just not going to happen for? Yes. A hundred percent. They can't see it. Not everyone can see the game at a high level. You got to try to highlight what they can do and what they're good at, and then put your players in the best position to succeed. So like if they're in these situations where they're continually not able to make the right reads, maybe not trying to put them in those positions, keep the things in their wheelhouse. Like if they're not a great decision maker, okay, I got to make it easier on them try as best as possible to keep the ball in my best decision maker's hands so that they're the finishers to the plays by a cut or receiving, you know, an open three point shot or like straight line drives to the rim where they can just, you know, finish. So you're also, you know, fighting for just trying to put the players in the best chance to succeed because then that also in turn is going to give your team a better chance to succeed because there might be less mistakes out there on the floor. Miles, in your position right now in the G League, and I know like this is across all different levels, but just your job in defining reality for players and you're going to have guys that are going to make the league and go up. You're going to have guys that are two way back and forth. And then I'm sure, you know, the majority are not going to get there in their aspirations obviously are, but you still have to coach that team. You still have to put them to play together. You still have to coach them like we've been talking about. What have you learned over the last few seasons of just how to coach all the different levels of reality that these players are coming across? One thing I do is I tell the truth. It doesn't matter if you're a two-way, if you're an assignment player, you're just a G League player. I tell you the truth about what I see individually and as a team. I believe the players appreciate that. They want to know the truth because for our league, if you don't tell them that they need to do this, this, and this, you're really doing them a disservice. And I mean, I tell guys, you got to be a better defender. You can't die on screens. Like you got to fight hard each and every time, every possession, no plays off. I've had a guy on my team. He's a very good on-ball defender. He's menace on the ball, but off the ball gets lost all the time. And I said, I use the example because we're lucky that we're in the same building as the Lakers. And so I can use this example a lot. I said, if you want to go one court over from the South Bay court to the Lakers court, you can't mess up these rotations on the backside because LeBron James is going to be looking at you crazy because he knows where you're supposed to be on the court and you didn't get there to rotate to a corner three-point shooter. Like it's unacceptable. Or if you're driving to the paint and three guys collapse on you and dudes are wide open on the weak side and you're not throwing them the ball, you're going to get pulled out of the game. If you're taking these like bad shots. Like I try to be as open and honest as possible about where they are, what they need to do better but also in giving them a lot of praise when they do do the right things and telling them like, hey, this is a strength of yours. Keep it going. 
if you can make corner threes at a high level in the NBA and then defend on the other end, like that can be a role for you. So I tell them the truth. I show it to them on film because it usually backs it up individually and team-wise. I think everybody being on the same page and there's no guessing, that helps everyone. Miles, how do you think about establishing an atmosphere with your program, you know, based on the conversation we just had with all players with different aspirations and viewing the South Bay Lakers more as maybe a stepping stone rather than like a career? The first thing I established when our team meets for the first time is that the Lakers organization, we are about winning. That is the number one goal. You look in our practice facility, all the championship banners, the championship trophies are hanging, and then the trophies are lined up along Genie Bus's wall or windowsill, and that overlooks the practice courts. I said, that's the number one thing when you're wearing a Lakers uniform. And I said, that doesn't change because when you guys want to go to the NBA, the goal of every team is ultimately to win. And the way that we win, we win as a group. We're going to help you get better individually and work on your games and all that's going to come with time. But the number one thing is that we want to win. So we established that right away, the very first meeting before we ever practice. So if you're not really about like the team and winning, then you're going to stand out like a sore thumb in our group because I don't let really anything slide by. So like you got to come in with the right mentality and mindset and that stuff is knocked out early. And yeah, of course, like the assignment guys, there's guys that come down that are assignment guys. Assignment guys are usually their draft picks, you know, come down and they think it might be just their time to like go for theirs. But when they come down to my group and they see like how we practice, how hard we play, how together we play, how connected we are, they fall right into line. Miles, maybe if we could double down on some of that stuff real fast. And you mentioned like you're not going to let stuff slide the players showing selfish tendencies or lazy or whatever the things are, I guess, what would be the intervention steps for you to get that player on the same page? I let them know that when they're not doing things the right way, whether bad shots, not playing defense, and this is practice or games, it's addressed immediately. There's no like waiting until the game is over or practice is over. No, when you're taking like bad contested shots, not sharing the ball, not hustling back on defense and practice. The whistle's blown. It's addressed. We move on to the next thing. I don't wait. I don't hold back on a lot of things. A big piece for me is accountability. You know, when you hold guys accountable, then the team looks like, okay, well, he's holding the best players accountable every single day, every single time. It goes a long way. And it starts with even like when it's film time, when we say like meet in film room at 11 o'clock, I turn the film on right at 11 o'clock. It's never 11.01. It's never 11 and like 30 seconds. 11 o'clock, we're starting. Or the bus is leaving from the hotel at 9 a.m. for shoot around. Got to be on the bus or you're going to get left. Those just carry over into like practices and games, those little type things about team. And it's really helped our group the last two years to have a lot of success. My last question on this subject is kind of tying the two things that we've been talking about together, which is the player development and the culture that you try to establish. And I guess how the player development, how working with a player's game and their skill set can help also build your culture, like them feeling like you're invested in them and their success and how you view that overall program as helping what you want to do overall as a team. 
Well, I think one thing that I do and we do as our staff, we build a lot of sweat equity with our guys. When we're doing the player development, we're not just passing the ball. And Pat can probably attest to this. He's worked with me enough. We build sweat equity with the guys. I'm not just passing and rebounding. Like I'm playing defense. I'm trying to get stops at times on guys, doing everything I can to just help the guys get better. And I think they see that and appreciate that, that like we really do invest in them and care about their growth and like how much that they want to get better. And then also, you know, achieve their goals of getting to the NBA. So I think that's a big part of it. And then also our staff has done a really good job and I really have to credit my assistant coaches. And I do this also, but it's a little bit different as the head coach, but we get to know our players. Like we spend time with them off the court, getting to know like what they like, what they do. We sit down, you know, have meals with them on the road. So it's not just to show up at practice, coach them, and then that's it. Know their families. If they got wives or kids. They really appreciate just like you asking like about these little things because they're not just basketball players. They got stuff going on outside of that gym every day too, real life stuff. And the more you're connected with them, the harder that they'll play for you. You just mentioned as the head coach is a little bit different in terms of how you build relationships with your players. Is it only because at the end of the day, you make the tougher decisions about their playing time, you know, their role. There's a threshold now that you're the head coach and being compared to when you're an assistant. I think there is a little bit of a line. I'm close with quite a few of the players, but sometimes I almost feel if you get really close as the head coach and then you have to make some tough decisions on guys, it makes your decisions a lot harder, whether it's playing time or if you have to like cut someone from the roster, because those are all decisions that follow me a lot. And so I just try to make sure I'm close enough and I know what's going on with these guys and we spend time or we get to know each other because I like them. They know that I have a life and like my family and my kids and everything too. It is sometimes hard between like the friendship and then the basketball side of things can get a little bit unclear at times. A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto-tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support. And now back to our conversation. We want to move on to a segment on the show that we call start, sub, or sit. For those maybe listening for the first time, we're going to give you three options, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one, and then we'll discuss your answers from there. So coach, this first one has to do with underrated coaching skills. And these are kind of like more soft skills we're going to talk about. So these are, your start here would be the one that you think is you know really highly valuable that coaches would need to you know, progress in their career. And these are three different things that when we're talking about dealing with your staff, your players, management, things like that. So the first option is a sense of humor. The second option is great gut instincts, whether that's tactically, whether that's with players. The third option is social IQ or just an awareness, ability to read the room. So start, sub, or sit to start being the most important of these skills. The start is, I believe you said gut instinct. Yeah. That's the start. Sub would be the ability to read the room. And then the sit would be sense of humor. Okay. 
I'd love to just dive in and ask you about your start and the gut instinct piece of being a coach and how you've learned to operate trusting your gut on all the decisions that you have to make as a head coach. I thought I was always a good player that had a great feel for the game, to know what's going on on the floor and have a feel for my teammates and what was needed at certain times of a game. Take, for instance, in the national semifinals in college, I still remember this very clearly. We were down 15 to four to North Carolina in the national semifinals. We like couldn't make a shot, couldn't get a shot. And all I did was as the leader of the team, I just said, give me the ball. And like just trying to reel our team and give them like confidence. And I think I scored a couple buckets and it changed the momentum of the game early in the game. But you got to have a feel. Sometimes it's just, you know, for rotations, subbing a guy in if he's, you know, hot or not, or like a feel, hey, tonight might not be a matchup for a certain player to play, but the next game could be. And then it's also a feel for how a guy is performing. You know, if he's showing up game to game, a feel for like how he's been practicing. And then even like a feel for your staff on like most of your staff, what's going on with them? Does one of your staff's energy seem off? Do you need to sit with them and ask like, you know, is there something going on? Anything I can help you with? So just having gut instincts on a few things is just a highly valuable skill in coaching. I love the, I mean, gut instinct, but the word feel. And you mentioned when you were a player, you had a good feel. And if we put kind of the player development hat back on. Can you develop like feel? I think we hear it a lot. Like, oh, that guy has a good feel for the game. So can you develop feel in a player? I don't know that you can. I think guys kind of have that in them already. They know what's going on. They know what to do. They can see the game. They can feel the game. They can feel the rhythm of the game. I think you can just develop them to help them maybe try to see things a little bit better and more clear. But those guys that have that innate ability to make guys better, make their teams better, raise their level of play. I think that's something that's just different. And guys usually have that for a very long time from when they're young. My son plays youth basketball. When I watch the games, I can see certain kids that have a great feel and others that don't. I don't know that the ones that don't will ever get it. They can get it maybe to a little smaller degree because they're just going to play so much basketball, but it's hard to develop that higher level. If you look back at your career outside of basketball, was there anything that you think attributed to your feel? I think my dad just put me around the game a lot. I was always at the gym with him, whether he was refing or coaching or playing. I was just on the floor a lot, but I think it was something that was just passed down. And like, you know, for whatever reason, God blessed me that I could see the game and know the game at a pretty high level. Maz, I'd love to stay with the gut instinct as a coach now. I think, you know, obviously at the NBA level, there's so many metrics, so many stats. There's all this information you can get. There's all the film you can get. But then there's this other level of just coaching feel, understanding your players, timeouts, situations, when you need to inflect your voice, all these things that are kind of not on paper, not on film, and maybe advice or things that you've learned for younger coaches trying to develop these skills of how to get that as a coach now too, as well as a player, like you said. With experience, being a head coach, I've learned a lot of things, a lot about myself too. One thing about the feel. So like I go into every game with a plan for like my rotations. So I have a little like card in my pocket and I go in with, Hey, I'm going to sub pad out first and then I'm going to bring him back. He's going to be my first sub at like seven minute mark. And then I'm going to bring him back to finish the quarter, start the second, et cetera, et cetera. What I've learned if Pat has made like his first three shots, I'm not taking Pat out. I'm going to let Pat roll a little bit longer 
And then I might just take somebody out or I let the group roll in general till they can't roll anymore. So just learning things like that, like you don't have to be super predictable in everything that you do. I learned like I had some players, very good players on our team that helped us win a lot of games, but like that certain guys, they couldn't play at end of games, even though sometimes I would want them in there. They might be having a great game, but they couldn't perform under pressure when it was a close game. They became more mistake prone towards the end of games. I had to learn that in some losses because certain things happen in the flow of games, just valuing those things. And then also, like you talked about the inflection of my voice, knowing when I can get on the guys and then also knowing when they need to be uplifted. Trust me, there's times for those sometimes in the same game where a timeout, like we didn't have attention to detail about scouting report and had to call a timeout. And it wasn't just one guy, it was a group and we're not executing the game plan and you let them know. And there's also times where teams go on a run, but it was the time to uplift and let them know, hey, it's a long game. We're going to make our run. We're going to get back in it. So finding that balance of when to use my voice in a stronger manner or when to uplift guys at the proper time. Miles, you also mentioned another situation with your gut is, you know, if you see a player, he's been practicing really well and maybe he's earned some minutes in terms of when you're looking at a player who's on the end of the bench or you know a rotational guy maybe what do you have to see in practice to convince you that maybe he is ready for more minutes is it does he got to make shots or is it his effort or is it his decision making that you're seeing in practice that helps convince you to say let's give him a shot a lot of times it's the effort and the concentration like it's a big learning point for guys in the G League because so many of these guys in the G League, like, you know, as pro basketball, when it gets pared down, so like high school, let's just say the numbers, there's 500,000 high school players, right? And then division one, whatever the number, I don't know what the number is. And then in the pros in the NBA, there's 450, right? So as it gets pared down the G League, these guys forget that like every other player on their G League team was probably also one of the best players on their college team and that these guys are good, but they all feel they should be playing above each other. So what I look for in that sense is like, okay, when you're out of the rotation, are you still coming in, getting your weightlifting in? Are you still taking care of your body? Are you still practicing hard each and every day? When we start going over the scouting reports, you know what's going on during walkthrough or, you know, when we're doing scout, we do scouting stuff during practices, you know, what's going on. I asked a guy this year, we're doing some scouting report stuff and we were playing James Wiseman. And I asked him, I said, which way is James Wiseman going to drive? Which hand is he? And he didn't know. And like James Wiseman, not some obscure basketball player. I didn't feel like it was an out of pocket question to ask. And I just had a feeling like that he didn't know and he didn't. So stuff like that, you got to stay ready so you don't have to get ready. It also sometimes depends on the guy in front of them. If that guy is not performing now, it's like, okay, now you can maybe get an opportunity to find some minutes. And then it's a matter of taking advantage of those opportunities when they come. All right, Miles, moving along, our last start sub sit for you. So this year, you guys were a top five offensive and defensive team. We want to ask you about defense, and we're going to give you three actions that are tough to defend in transition. So the start would be the toughest, in your opinion, in terms of defending. So start, sub, or sit, the drag screen, option one. Option two, the delay, when the team's played as a delay. Or option three, the pistol action. <laughs> okay. Drag would be the hardest. I would start drag. Pistol, I would sub. And then delay, I would sit. I guess to kick it off, 
Uh, what is the most important in transition in terms of defending the drag screen for you or what were you guys working on? First, it's just like got to get your guys back and loaded to the ball. That's going to help get your defense set as best as possible. But then a lot of the drag is going to depend on the player. Okay. Let's just say Steph Curry, for example, bringing it up. So like my pickup point has to be a little bit higher. He has four point range. Now my guard has to pick up a little bit higher, which also means for us, our bigs in pick and roll, we play up to touch. So we're at the level of the screen. If the screen is moved out to like the four point line, I only allow my bigs to go out to like heels or toes on the three point line because I don't need them extending out on these quick dynamic guards. Then they're just getting blown by or they're getting split or whatever. But anyway, so on the drag, my big still got to be up and have some type of presence because if it's a guard that can shoot off a drag, you know, behind the screen or one step past the screen, then we got to be able to have some type of presence at the level of the ball. Then in saying that is the big that setting a dynamic roller that gives you another set of problems. If that like he's coming and let's say he's slipping out and he can get to the rim quick, like an Anthony Davis or something like that. Now your big is worried about the roller and he's worried about a three point shooter. So the reason we need to be loaded to the ball is because now I need my low man to be in, in case the roller gets behind my big. I got to have a nail presence that will also help my big man get back to his big on the roll. And then like he's showing that there's a crowded lane, that there's no driving lane. So there's all these things and you have to worry about all these things. Then you got to worry about like the screen being flipped and like going downhill. There's just a lot of options out of the drag. And a lot of it has to do with the players that are in it. So it's just a dangerous and it's such a, it's a quick hitting action. It's simple. And because the defense is usually like flowing back, and most bigs run to where in transition? To the rim. They run to the rim. So it's a hard one for like a big to stop because they always think that the big is going to the rim. So now you're not in really good pick and roll defensive position or alignment. With the drag, how much onus do you put on like the pickup point of the guy guarding the ball handler and influencing the ball handler if he can in transition to help mitigate some of the stuff of the drag? Yeah, pickup point is huge. It becomes like personnel based really about your pickup point, never below the three point line, even on like really like a non-shooter because usually a non-shooter is usually a good driver, but we also don't want to give him like downhill steam. So usually like our pickup point is no less than the three point line, depending on who we're playing. So that's super important. And then the way this year where we pick and roll defend now I've done it two ways because like Frank Vogel, he was an ice guy. So last year we were like an ice team, but it's hard to ice drag pick and rolls because they happen so quickly. But like Darvin Ham staff is just a send it to the screen, no matter where it is, pick and roll guy. And that's usually what you have to do on drags anyways. So just trying to influence it, get into the ball, not give a ball handler any type of freedom on pick and rolls or a lot of choices is your best option anyways. Almost forcing them one way, that way you're ready to fight over screens either way that they come. So all that is super important. So like guarding the ball at the point of attack is like the number one thing. Miles, I'd like to ask about the pistol action, which was your sub. I'll just get specific on it. I think what can make the pistol difficult is when they kind of run that ghosting action or the guy up from the guard from the corner doesn't really set a screen or receive the ball. How were you trying to navigate with those two guards handling these ghost screens defensively? I'm not going to say it's super easy, but we simplify it as best as possible. So like when a guy's a slip out guy, 
which most shooters are. A lot of shooters do not set. When we watch the film, we know that Miles is going to be a slip out guy. Like he's coming out of the corner because he just wants the flare screen to the shot. So our call is square, square, square. So that means you're anticipating a guy is going to slip out and you're telling the guy on the ball to just stay square on the ball. There's no screen coming because I'm not a big switching guy. Now I will switch on the ball if they set the screen. So we say square, square, square. And then if the guy wants to set the screen, then we just say red. So like you can be prepared. You're staying attached to your guy. And then if he wants to slip out, you're there to be able to fight over the top of the little flare action. We try to eliminate switch confusion as best as possible. And our guys have been good at that, but we practice it a lot because there's so much slipping action. Keith Morris actually made a great point probably three years ago about guarding slip outs. You can tell when a guy's going to slip out by the speed in which he's coming to the ball. Because if you're running full speed, you're not going to be able to set it because you're going to get a moving screen. If you're coming with a little bit less pace, the guy's usually going to set because now he has to get his feet planted. And I thought that was a great evaluation of how to guard the slip out action or ghost screens. Miles, you mentioned something you prefer not to switch if you don't have to. I'm just wondering, I guess, philosophy on why you prefer not to if you don't have to. So when you do a whole game plan, right? Let's just take the starters, for example. You're always going to have maybe one or two weaker defenders. Hopefully it's only one or whatever. But you want to keep that guy on his matchup, right? Because otherwise you're switching him on to a matchup that's not going to be as advantageous for your group or your team. So we don't do a lot of off-ball switching. The only thing I allow off-ball switching, we have what are called curl switch principles. So if a guy wants to curl and it's like guard to guard or guard to wing, that's an automatic switch any rip screens or back screens where the cutter is going to the basket, that's a switch. When they're just running like a staggers away or something like that, you stay with your own. We don't allow all that switching and switch confusion and point switching and all that stuff. We stay with our matchups and it teaches guys to fight. There's way less confusion because like when you start point switching, well, I thought he was going to go do this and he was going to do that. Well, he curled, he did this, this time he back cut. No, we have a scheme and we have principles in place for all those actions. So if you just talk it out, it usually works out pretty well. And then we don't even really switch DHOs. You can just stay with your own because like we want to take advantage of maybe blowing up some DHOs and finding because guys will be weak on the toss and you can shoot the gap and, you know, maybe get a steal or deflection, stuff like that. Because then, you know, a lot of guys are good on like DHO keeps. So like if you don't come together on the DHO, like there's some heavy switching teams in our league. We exploited some of that with just dribble keeps. They would never come together. They were anticipating we were just going to toss the ball and our guy would keep and he would literally walk to the rim or spray it out for a three. Really the only switches that we do consistently game to game are those curl switch things. And then like size, like pick and roll. We just say one through four because I just consider everybody a guard or a wing. So if they set, then we can red. You mentioned it because I was going to ask you in follow-up about the footwork or the angles or the the coverage of your big on a DHO because we kind of talked about you like him up to touch on a drag if possible or on on-ball stuff. Does that change at all on handoffs like in the delay action, like their level of a handoff, how you want to disrupt the ball or not? Like, where do you want your bigs on those handoffs? They should be up pressuring the ball. And that way, when the guy is coming off, 
the DHO. He's at the level of the screen where we would ask him to be a DHO. is just another version of a pick and roll. We don't have our bigs back. We're up pressuring active hands, trying to get deflections, having a presence. I don't like to be just like soft and then just letting a big dictate the offense, pass the ball where he wants. Because then even on DHOs, if the guard or wing that's coming to receive it, if they clip our guy, then that guy's coming off naked and turning the corner, whether it's to attack the rim or now it's a two-on-one downhill, you know, it just puts you in a bad position. You mentioned a couple of times your curl switch principle. And just philosophically, why you settled on that, just kind of let's just make it a switch if they curl. So one thing, like I got that from Frank Vogel, and he actually really designed it for the Golden State Warriors and how they play. So if you watch like Clay and Steph, obviously those guys are monsters off the ball, and that's where they're really most dangerous. And if you watch how they move and the way they're just curl, it's hard to like, because they're such great shooters. You got to go over the top. Like you can't cut screens because they're really good on the flares. You know, the guys that are setting are really good at setting the pin ins, stuff like that. So it's easier as a group, like you're staying connected. That guy that's setting that curl screen, you know, is just easy to meet them body to body. Now you're basically picking up, you know, Steph or Clay on that. And then the guy that was guarding Steph or Clay is just going body to body with the screener who's, you know, Andrew Wiggins or Iguodala or whoever it might be. So it just makes it a little bit easier defensively to where you're not giving up these layups on these curl switches and then it's just taking away the action. Miles, you're off the start subset hot seat. Thanks for playing that uh, segment with us. All right. <laughs> was, <laughs> I'm glad I was able to make it through. Yeah, flying colors. That was a lot of fun. Hey, we got one last question for you to close the show. Before we do, thanks again. This was really fun for us. We appreciate all your thoughts and your time today. Yeah, no problem, man. Glad to join you guys. Our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? By far, the best investment was leaving the NBA as the fourth assistant and becoming a G League head coach. By a landslide, that was the best thing I've ever done. I've become infinitely better as a coach because I've taken on head coaching duties. There's so much that goes on for a head coach, you know, every day, every offseason that you just don't get to do as an assistant coach. I've learned about managing people better because I have a staff of five coaches that I have to lead every day. Like when I come into a staff meeting, I'm the guy they look to, to like, you know, set the tone of the meeting and what's going to happen that day and what's going to happen going forward. I got to manage my 10 to 13 players on the floor. I have a training staff that I got to work with, you know, every day. So it's like all these subsets of groups that all have different thoughts and opinions and like taking all that stuff in. Then also the great advantages of that is I get to work with the South Bay front office along with the Lakers front office. And you get to learn how front office thinks on certain things about players and what they want and what they see in players, what they see in the games, where like as a NBA assistant coach, you're just not privy to a lot of those conversations and a lot of those things. And then I'll be honest, two summers ago when I got the job, I was like super nervous because I was like, dude, do I know how to run an offense? Never really done it before. I'd done it like AAU, I coached in the EYBL and some other things, some college summer league, but okay, can I run an NBA offense? You know, am I going to be able to run practices every day? What are my practices going to look like? So just being able to do those things, putting together game plans, substitution patterns, you know, shoot arounds, all these things have just been the best investment for my career by far. 
All right, Pat, wrap up time, debrief, little back end stuff here. Coach Simon, obviously, is one of the you know most historic college basketball players of all time and whatnot. Yeah, we've gotten the chance, and, and specifically even more you getting to work out with him when you'd come home in the summers as you were playing overseas. You'd work out with him quite a bit, and so. You know, the player development stuff that we'll get into in a second. I mean, you got a chance to work out with him quite a bit over those years. So I know, you know, close up, you've worked with him. You know, I've got a chance to know Miles playing against him in some men's leagues and having him crush us, you know, <laughs> from time to time. But really a fun conversation. A lot of nuggets here that we can just dive into right away. So I'll just kick it to you on your first kind of takeaways here. Yeah. First, yeah, Miles is a great guy. So it's been fun just getting to know him and then getting him on the podcast. I was really looking forward to this and I'm really glad where we, I think we went back and forth on like the first, let's say our, our bucket where to go with it and just knowing a little about him and then knowing too the, the nature of the G league, I'm glad we settled on the player development and specifically how he thinks about just kind of putting in plans of action and how he thinks about not only the individual, but the conceptual. So it was really fun hearing his thoughts. Cause I, I know he does it really well. I enjoyed the most out of the first segment was when we got into just players that are struggling, stagnating. Yeah. And I thought he spoke really well on kind of the realistic nature that some players get it and some players don't. I mean, he was honest that you, of course, don't stop coaching them, but you just keep trying and keep trying. You celebrate the little things that happen. And I mean, he gave a good example of finally it clicked for one of their players who finally was making the dump off passes. But I think it's a very real part of the game. And it, Went into a little bit later when we started talking about like the feel of the game too. And yep. hearing that conversation that maybe some it's natural and you can maybe you can get a little bit, but you can never really develop feel in his opinion. It was cool. The whole conversation I enjoyed about dealing with stagnating players and how you just kind of continue to push forward in the course of a season. And I know you and I have talked about this a lot off air the last couple of weeks about these plateaus Yeah, because it's always great when you see a player get better and better better and then become a better better player and your team gets better and that's all great but players plateau they reach a certain level and you know then that's good and i think what i really liked was adding to your point about kind of defining reality yeah and it is a huge part of obviously miles's job is to develop these players but also then to deal in realities and it's sometimes almost it's huge as a coach to be able to understand what your players can and can't do and coach them to that. And that's not meaning you don't give up on the players that maybe can't perform at a certain level or aren't understanding, but you can still find ways to have them help you win. And it almost helps you coach maybe a little bit better because you just know, okay, here's certain guys that can do this. Here's ones that can't at this point. And so we can't, you know, wait for them to develop. We got to win some games. I mean, talked about too, one of my key takeaways in that section was about you know the lakers are all about winning and he's all about winning so that's what it ultimately comes down to and i think defining that reality is huge and obviously you talk to it and the plateau conversation it's a very very real one that every level every coach deals with the player that just is hit a plateau or has hit their peak maybe or like in his case too he talked about the player ahead of them is just maybe better and that's going to be a roadblock for them so yeah. There's a ton in there. I wrote down too, like we had the chance. It was, we really loved our conversation with Phil Beckner recently as well, where we hit on player development and his thoughts on it. And I think what's interesting is we talked about like the different angles here 
where Miles also is the head coach who's doing the player development too. So he has to then make some of these decisions. And Phil talked about, we talked a lot about, you know, getting players to certain levels and things like that. So two different angles coming off of it that I liked and kind of tied back in myself. On that note, I think with Coach Beckner, you know, he said, you, know, you got to really focus on like the minutia, the tiniest details, maybe to help that player get over this hump or start continuing to grow a little bit. And then, like you said, with Miles, who's running a team, maybe it becomes more about how do I protect that player and not put him in the situations where, whether it's struggle or maybe you're going to run into failure or breed frustration, probably is a better point, not only with the player, but then also the coach who's continuing to put him in these situations that he just is not prepared to excel out or find the solution. So piggybacking off of the point you made yet, which was enjoyable about this conversation and also enjoyable about, you know, Coach Beckner's is just approaching it at two different angles. And Miles did hit on it too at the beginning of the pod when he was more in that player development realm before becoming a coach. And I thought it was a fun, honest conversation of just how you kind of go through a season when a player is struggling or not producing at the way that you're attempting to to teach it, let's say. For sure. And it kind of relates to it as well. He he made a point and maybe this is also tying in a conversation I would like to have more of and go deeper is end of game players versus non end of game players. Yeah, that was a great point he brought up. Like it just gets to trust and we talked about it a little bit. I thought it was a really great point and it's really true and Maybe we'll try to resurface that conversation somewhere else and go deeper with another coach. I liked his points, and I think it's really true as a coach of who you trust and who you can play down the stretch that doesn't, I guess, shrivel or have the pressure get to them. Yeah, I agree. I think that was definitely, I mean, as we think about things we would have loved to have talked about more if we had unlimited time, that was one of them. He kind of brought that up at the end of our first start subsit segment. Right. I enjoyed, too, another kind of tangent we went on was how he knows when a player is ready or he's been practicing really well, the yeah. gut to give him more minutes. And it's a conversation we've been having, I think, a lot lately too. Just the importance of having a player who can concentrate. Yeah. You know, yeah. that really builds a lot of trust in a coaching staff when you know this player is like concentrated, he's locked in. I mean, I'm sure as everyone thinks, it's like, oh, skill, he can produce. He's, but it comes down to these small things that maybe keep you off the court. Adding to your point, I think we're in start sub sit now. We love start stuff. Sit. It's always so much fun for us to see where they go. And side note, you and I were stressing up to the very last minute before Miles hopped on because <laughs> yeah, sometimes we have these pretty locked in the start stuff. Sits you know well before, and we had a hard time coming up with our two for some reason this morning. But at the eleventh hour, we got them both, and I actually just really loved the conversations that came out of both. Yeah. So I guess kind of sticking on what was the executive underrated coaching skills. That gut instinct thing, he just really spoke well on it. And I loved how he's developed it, you know, how he was as a player. I think anybody that has ever watched Miles play at Arizona and, you know, and then his career in the NBA, I mean, he, and you and I have had the chance to, you know, kind of play against it. Yeah. His instincts are off the charts as a player. Yeah. But then as a coach, too, how he's kind of developed that. I took that away a lot. Jumping ahead, I guess, too, his best investment answer was just really a great real answer about the value of becoming a head coach versus being the fourth assistant like you mentioned and how I think that's probably helped with his gut instinct too of knowing how to manage people and all the things he mentioned so I'm kind of throwing a lot back at you here with star sub sit but those were some takeaways kind of tying in his best investment into that first one for me too 
Yeah. And, you know, the tough to defend one. There was a ton of nuggets he threw in in there. Yeah. The switching conversation and why he's not a switching coach. Yep. But then the couple of principles he has, I really enjoyed his philosophy. And then hearing about the curl switch principle, those nuggets. I mean, that's not, I mean, okay, it's not a foreign concept, but it's something I don't think we've heard on the pod. And just his philosophy out why just kind of let's just automatically switch it and solve it that way. You know, that was also like a, I kind of wrote down as maybe a conversation we can have deeper, whether video breakdown or another coach on the kind of more of the details on what types of screens to switch versus not switch. He had mentioned any kind of rim attacking screen, like a rip screen. Yeah, a rip screen or a back screen. We'll switch that. This curl switch makes sense because that curl's taking you to the rim. So that kind of, you know, it goes into that philosophy. And we talked to another Lakers assistant. Gent. Yeah, Coach Gent on the staff now. And he also vehemently, I remember, hated the point switch. We asked him about switching and Miles doesn't like the point switch either. And I liked hearing his thoughts why. If you got a sense of Miles's defensive tendencies to be aggressive, pressure, yes. knife in on the DHOs and things like that. And sometimes a point switch, though it can be super effective if done well, it can lead to guys just kind of pointing and switching and not being aggressive on certain actions. I agree. And he did mention your favorite DHOs and just yeah, how they would yeah, attack yeah. those point switches, those DHO keepers. Yeah. So I started thought, salivating a little you know, bit over here. Maybe we, we'd lost yeah, you. No, I, was, yeah. I, was, yeah. I was ready to see if he could go another hour on the DHOs, my favorite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure. So big thanks again to Coach Simon. Much success to him. Yes. Pat, I think it's a good place to end it. As, as good as any. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll do this again next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.